When I was sharing with you last night, you probably remember this, uh, this quote that I shared with you. Venerable Ananda was having that conversation with the Buddha, Ananda being the Buddha's cousin. They're really actually quite close and his main attendant. And he asked the Buddha, you know, blessed one, they say that the world is empty. What does the saying, the world is empty, refer to? And then the Buddha replies, Ananda, they say that the world is empty because it's empty of self or what belongs to self. And this is important in terms of what we're doing here, because when I begin to see experiences empty of a self or what belongs to, or what I believe belongs to a self, right? When I see that's empty, oh, there's freedom, there's release. And, and to talk a little bit about how to get a taste of that. And at the same time, as I like to do, I want to complicate it in the sense that even though the Buddha says that the world is empty, it's empty of self and what belongs to self, there's still a very important place for a self-sense or in psychological terms to have a strong sense of self. As Jack Engler puts it, Jack Engler was a, I think he was a, oh boy, a psychologist at, at Harvard, a wonderful person. I had the opportunity of interviewing him. And he wrote this essay called Being Somebody and Being Nobody. And both, I think, are essential components on this path towards freedom. And missing either one can kind of lead us astray. So I, I want to slow down with this and, and, and really take some time with it. And also we'll have time where I'll share with you about the practice of realizing, you know, as the classic phrase and uh, we find in so many of the, the discourses, this is not me, this is not mine, this is not who I am. I think the first thing we need to do is to get clear about what's meant by this word self and the, the particular quote unquote self that the, the Buddha is so curious about seeing that it, this process of seeing that it's not me, not mine, not who I am. And what's this revolving around this, this exploration. As I said, Jacqueline Engler puts the, uh, a lot of this path in this process of, of being somebody and being nobody. And I appreciate the distinction he, he makes. He talks about what he calls a psychological self compared to an ontological self. Ontology being the, the study of being kind of a, a more kind of essential, essentialist self. And his, his uh, perspective is, is that the Buddha is talking about more about seeing the empty nature of the ontological self that it's, it's something that we put into the cup, remember? We think it's there. There's an ontological self there and experience, but there's not. And what he means by 
uh, ontological self is it's some kind of sense of self. And I'm sure you've felt this. This is one of the, the problems <laughs> that we end up suffering from. It's a sense of self that feels static and permanent. And sometimes it feels like it's it's right there. It feels like it's right there at the core of experience. It's right there at the center. So this is some of the de definition of it. it permanent, atta, the Pali word, or atman in, in Sanskrit. It's permanent. It's fixed. And it's at the center or core of experience. And then some of the suttas also he's talking about when he's having these conversations about this topic, it's also a kind of self that is um, not only permanent and at the core of experience, but it's like the sense that it's uh, that it's in control or that it has control. And this is much of what the Buddha is trying to undermine. And why is he trying to undermine it? Not for philosophical reasons. This is really important. It's because it's the scene that, that when I get lost in that, there's suffering. So this is really important to make this distinction. Because again, the thing I appreciate about Jack Engler, he's saying that having a strong sense of self, it's called ego strength, or we could say the psychological self, is super, super important for this path. And bypassing that, which I think I did for a while, was not really helpful for my spiritual development or my spiritual awakening. It's maybe another story. I don't know if I'll get to that. So I want to talk a little bit about this psychological self and the importance of it and, and, and ways of understanding that. Before I do that, I do want to come back to the Buddha because the way the Buddha talks about not self is really fascinating. And it's something that you, at least in these discourses, starts to change later on in Buddhism. And you find this much in Theravada Buddhism too, which is, I want to point out that interestingly, the Buddha never states in the, these Pali, in the Pali Canon, he never has the statement, there is no self. It's really quite interesting. Like Vachagota, this character who's really quite passionate about the the path comes to the Buddha and says, is there a self? Blessed one, tell me, is there a self? And the Buddha doesn't say anything. Well, come on, buddy, is there no self? And the Buddha is silent. And Ananda was there and maybe Ananda being the codependent type was like, whoa, what were you doing? What, what, what? Why didn't you say anything? <laughs> And the Buddha essentially says, because I would have confused him. And even in one of the discourses, that might, this might be the second one in the middle-length discourses, the Buddha is talking about attending appropriately and inappropriately to experience. I want to share with you one way to attend inappropriately to experience, or a couple ways. says, when there is these kinds of view that arise in the practitioner, they're attending inappropriately. It's when they have the view, I have a self arises in them as true and established. Or they have the view, I have no self arises in them 
as true and established. So I feel like he's talking about something than making a philosophical claim if there's a self or no self. Rather, he's inviting a kind of disidentification that leads to freedom. Which makes sense because we find the Buddha using notions of self all the time. We do loving kindness to ourselves. <laughs> Self-compassion. Self-compassion maybe is not explicitly talked about, but fits so well. There's a sutta, the Atakari Sutta, where he's talking, Brahma comes up to him and says, there is no doer. You know, don't you teach that there's no doer? He was like, no, no, I don't teach that. <laughs> it's a very interesting <laughs> sutta, but but what he's trying to point out is two things. One is one is is that we do have a sense of agency. We don't have control, but there is a sense of agency, which is part of this, you could say, psychological sense of self. Or in the uh, the Potapada Sutta. He's having this um, conversation with Chitta, uh, Chitta, the elephant trainer's son. And Chitta's going on about the uses of the word self and all these different kinds of cells. And it almost feels like the Buddha cuts him off and just says, listen, Chitta, these are name, merely names, expressions, turns of speech, designations in common use in the world, which the Tathagata, another word for the Buddha, uses with mis without misapprehending them. So how do we use this notion of self, this notion of identity that supports and is, is in some ways part of the foundation of this path? Like this is some of what we've been exploring exploring a sense of positive regard for oneself to get a sense that i matter i i'm i'm actually okay and it's okay for me to take up space to cultivate a strong sense of self and for me like having loving kindness towards myself helped stabilize that self-compassion has helped stabilize that or what we were doing earlier today, to rejoice in the joys in my life, but not only rejoice in the joys in my life, but rejoice in the places where I'm doing things well. Like as I shared with you, there's this whole recollection, for example, one is encouraged to recollect on one's generosity, not to feel bad, but to be able to say, and these, these are kind of the specific words, I am a person who is generous. And that feels so good. In terms of psychological language, that is the process of stabilizing a strong sense of self. I'm a pretty good person. Look at, I do skillful things like this. I'm a generous person. 
I have some ethical integrity and it feels good. That's the kind of person I am. I am. So hopefully you're hearing, this is a really good thing to do. <laughs> and the Buddha is all about it. To rejoice in that, anumodana. To create this strong sense of self. It doesn't mean we're going to fixate it or see it as permanent or make it at the center of experience. But it has a place. And in, in addition to this, it's important to remember that the notion of self and a sense of self was so radically different during the Buddha's time. It's incredibly different. Modern living is, <laughs> we live in a radically different culture. So if you imagine during the Buddha's time, when, when you were growing up, you, what you needed to wear, what you were going to wear was already decided for you, the clothes you were going to wear, the food you were going to eat, the person you were going to marry was decided for you and what that was going to look like, who you're going to be paired with and what those commitments look like and your obligations to that. Your life direction for most people during the Buddhist time, guess what? Determined often by the where you were kind of in those different categories in society. And then if you left that and became a monastic, guess what? That was super determined what you were going to eat and where and how you were going to act. There was no need to reflect on that. And sometimes when I think about that, wouldn't that be so relieving not having to make all these decisions? And, and yet some of the self-sense gets created by this friction of modern living. It, 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 it's one of the, the, the pieces of this. So hopefully you're, you're hearing about the, uh, the, the importance of a, of a sense of self and, a, and a, hopefully a, a, a strong, a, a stabilized one. And I think Jack Engler was so interested in this because coming from a psychological background, and probably most of you know, a lot of what in terms of developmentally what's happening in us, as, as us as uh, human beings is we're cultivating a sense of self. And if you have a, um, a dynamic that's happening in those, especially those developmental years, when that development doesn't happen smoothly, we often have to come back to that. Many of you might know this, the injuries that we feel when we're younger, it, 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 it makes an impact in stabilizing what's called ego strength. Like if we're missing that full recognition of ourselves, we're getting, you know, the good enough care, the good enough love as a person. 
then, then I need to, to do the healing for that. So this is just like normal, I want to say, developmental stages. So I want to be clear, like around not self, and there's been some really great writers about this. It's, it's not about becoming a child who has not developed a sense of self. I, mean, I think there's really great poetic views of being a child because of the, the, the openness and, and newness and sometimes innocence that's there. But it's not to repl replicate not having a, a, a fully formed sense of self. It's about having that as a foundation and then having a sense of something broader. So being somebody really supports what we'll see being nobody. So I think that's one sense of self that's so important that we are cultivating through this practice. And then I want to also name a, a, an ex exploration around this that's been so important for me, you could say systemically or collectively. And it comes down to this, you could say, a human need around recognition. To be recognized for my sense of being in the world. And of course, it's like many of these developmental needs when that gets met developmentally, often what happens in the spiritual practice is that I, I don't need that as much. I can see that I don't have to be dependent upon that. And that's part of this practice, right? Is that sometimes we are understood and sometimes we're not, and sometimes we're recognized and sometimes we're not. And when I have this foundation, it's like I can let go into that. There's a stability for that. but it's also necessary to land that. And systemically, it's important to land that. Like we live in a society that there are different ways of being that are not fully recognized. That can be racially, gender-wise, gender-wise on, on many different ability. All those things I mentioned in the Welcome. And to understand the dynamics of who gets fully recognized and who doesn't, there needs to be language of identity. Like when, when I see myself as a white person, I can start to understand inequities. Right? Statistically, just because of the color of my skin, the likelihood of me experiencing what's called a wrongful conviction, right? When I get convicted of something I didn't do, it is like, what, four or five times lower than if I had black skin, right? Wrongful convictions, statistically, is that much higher. I'm so glad for statistics to reveal that how we see each other and how we interact is at play. And it's been so helpful for me to, to if, since I value non-harming, to see these dynamics. 
gender inequities around pay still the case you're seen as a woman same work background same exact background statistically you're still going to get paid less than the man so i'm mentioning these things because sometimes i think that there is no self can be weaponized in a way that it bypasses important psychological things and systemic things. And I can't help to think that the, the Buddha would be so down for all this. He cares, and there's a nuance to the way he teaches. And lastly, this is a more subtle thing that I won't get into, but especially around the systemic things, I find the teaching on not self so helpful because like, when I hear about, you know, being the white cisgendered heterosexual guy, and I see my conditioning around that, I don't have to take it so personally. It's like, yeah, this is just what society, this is how society has shaped this heart and this mind. And uh, of course I wanna uh, uh, address it so I don't cause harm. It, it's not me, it's not mine, it's not who I am. It's conditioning. So relieving. So hopefully you can see these these can play together in really powerful ways. So yeah, a sense of being somebody. Being somebody's really important in these ways. So we don't bypass it. And at the same time, can we cultivate being somebody in a way that the Buddha was talking about, in a way that I'm mis not misapprehending it? This is the key. This is so important. Not to fixate, not to obsess, not to make it a fixed center. And this comes to the other part, being nobody. Right. And the way we realize this is through this process of seeing that everything in experience, it's not me, it's not mine, and it's not who I am. Whereas the Buddha says, it's, there's not, I can't find a self and I, I, I can't find uh, and, and I can't find anything that belongs to some kind of self. So how to understand this process and how to see it as, as Tanisaro Bhikkhu talk, talks about it. I really appreciate how he talks about not self. It's really uh, refined. He talks about it as a strategy, a strategy that leads to freedom. Not a fixed view. So the, the, I'm sure many of you heard this poem. I love this poem because <laughs> I think it, it really reveals something about this whole process. And it's a poem by Virginia Hamilton Adair and she lived in Claremont, California. And Claremont, California was the, it was the city that was, you could say, below the Zen Center that I was practicing at. I practiced at Mount Baldy Zen Center. So if you drove down from Mount Baldy, 
you'd end up in in Claremont, California. And every so often, this is before my time when I was a monk there, she would come up and do uh, session, these seven-day intensive retreats. So she wrote about her experience, and she called it a zazen, zazen being the, 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 um, the word you find in Zen for sitting meditation. So she begins. She says, when I first and remember imagining she's, you know, she's coming to the retreat. So this, this is her coming to the retreat. She says, when I first floundered in, no one knew me, not even myself. Staggering under a Saratoga trunk, a big suitcase that was filled with, that was crammed with humiliations, bottled like urine samples nail kegs of anger, carbons of abusive letters, chemistry quizzes with Fs, even the horse I never had, and the two casseroles left over from the dime dip supper. No one remarked that I'd brought too much. I was wearing three fur hats donated by opulent cousins, my feet encased in cement ever since the failure of the patio project, and my mouth full of barbs as an old trout. No one praised me on my appearance. The trunk fell off my back, disgorging its unusual contents at my stone feet, which also came off. The fur hats tumbled like a moth-eaten avalanche, burying a small monk. No one noticed. My sweat began to dry. I folded myself into one piece. No one. Have you noticed the Saratoga trunk you brought into this retreat? Have you noticed the suitcase? It's amazing what we carry around with us, don't you think? It's, it's so like oppressive. And so I'm so glad when I'm on retreat, nobody notices what I'm, what I'm carrying around. And I find her list so telling about the things that we quote unquote carry around that we say, this is me, this is mine, this is who I am. Chemistry quizzes with Fs. All right, those of you who had a challenging time in school, wow. Like it, it, it does, it can like hit us that way of like, that's who I am. I'm the one who's not smart. And there it is. There's an, it's in the suitcase, and it's like, oh, I'm carrying that around. The copies, the carbons of abusive letters. Wow. Oh, this is, this is me. This is who I am. This is mine. And even more poignant, even the horse I never had. 
that's me. Who am I? I I'm, I'm the one who didn't have these things. And I create somebody out of them and I fixate it. And have you noticed when your mind does that, what happens with that? It hurts. It's stifling. It's oppressive. I find it binds my heart. This is what can happen with this I, me, and mine when, when, when I think there's this somebody there that's fixed, permanent, that I call me, mine, and it's at the center of experience. Like there's an obsession there, obsession with a fixed me. This great quote from the Buddha, he says, practitioners, whatever one stays obsessed with, that's what one is measured by. I'll just say that again, isn't that interesting? Whatever one is stays obsessed with, that's what one is measured by. Whatever one is measured by, that's how one is classified. And then oppositely, whatever one doesn't stay obsessed with, that's not what one is measured by. Think chemistry quizzes with Fs. Not obsessed with it, I'm, I'm not going to measure myself by that, by that experience. And whatever one is, isn't measured by, that's not how one is classified. Have you noticed that? I know I've seen that. What I get obsessed with in the Saratoga trunk, right? I say it's me, it's mine. I start to measure myself by it. I start to classify myself by it. Fixed. There's a somebody there that's fixed, permanent. It feels like that. And of course, we often come by it honestly, don't we? You notice this? So much of this could be our upbringing. So often, I know I can get the sense of being boxed in in some way. Like I have a friend and this is a little bit extreme, but I think it's something telling about it. They were in a family and it was quite a large family and the parents um, really had like specific roles for each of the kids. So there, were, there was the one that was the artist. And once the artist started to become interested in math or more academic stuff, it'd be like, honey, no, 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 that's not your thing. That's not who you are, you're the artist. And the one that was more academically oriented got interested maybe in the piano or something like that. Sweetie, uh-uh, like you don't have, you're, you're not the one with musical talent. Like you're, you're, you have to be doing the, the math stuff.
sometimes it's not that obvious, but it, it can be like, you, you know, the, these notions that we get about ourselves that are sometimes fed to us by others. The list goes on. Be the the one who's always wrong, the one who's never good enough, the the one who's always right, the one who needs to be perfect. And these are kind of narratives. Of course, it, this gets more and more subtle about what our minds tend to identify with, what our minds start to say is me and mine. There's a whole list of things. Like it's it quite subtle, but I just want to give it more general on this narrative sense in terms of story because I think it's a place to get a sense of it. And then it, there are so many other tentacles of what feels like me, it's mine, it's who I am. And hopefully you're starting to hear like it, this kind of fixating, it, it separates us. It, it, when I start to slow down with this, it's the opposite of like the feeling of intimacy I get when I was talking about intimacy last night pulls me away from the world and even myself. Because I'm taking these things to be who I am. But it's not only that, it's also what belongs to a self, which I think is so interesting. And again, I'm trying to simplify these things. There's, there's so much to explore around this. But just one story to, to, to exemplify this belonging to a self. And again, it's, it's more on the narrative level, but I think is a good gateway in. I remember an individual and they, uh, they were in an interesting bind. They, um, they had a pretty tough upbringing and, uh, not the best experience with the the parenting that they received to put it very very lightly and later much much later on in their life their um their father was declining they were uh he was losing a lot of ability and he needed help and this person realized I got to help them. But it was super difficult to do that because of all the kind of the damage that this person experienced from their father. And do you know what the turn was for them that allowed something different to happen? This is so remarkable when, when they told me this, is they started practicing and realizing, oh, this doesn't have to be my father, because that's where the problem was. The whole problem was, this is my father. And what turned it was to see that, oh, this is an elderly person who's suffering. This isn't mine. This isn't mine. This doesn't belong to me. This is someone who's suffering. Do you hear how even the claiming of something 
sometimes can constrict our lives in this way, in terms of how we perceive it. And when that's released, right? this isn't me, this isn't mine. This doesn't belong to me. There's a space that opens up for, for something really radically different. Compassion. John Ruskin put it really well, very simply, when, when a person is wrapped up in themselves, they make a pretty small package. There's something so freeing to step out of that small package. This, this is the power of being nobody. Yeah, it needs the foundational piece of being somebody individually, and I would say systemically and collectively, like Eleanor Roosevelt says on the systemic level, right? Everyone does better when everyone is doing better. The importance of that for our practice too. And this other piece of being nobody. for the intimacy to stop being at the center in a way that's unskillful and harmful. So how to be nobody, how to realize this, to really get a taste of this. And I wanna say there's such depth and there's so many different flavors of this. And I, I wanna give the, the full range here one is, um, it's just the practice that we're doing here. It's just, it's, it's inherent in noticing experience in the way that I've been inviting you to do this. Oh, interesting. That's a thought that just arose and passed away. So when I label that, this is why I think noting and labeling can be helpful. Oh, thinking, planning. There it is, worry. What's implied in that is, it's not me, it's not mine. It's just an arising, such a relief. I'm always worried. Oh my God, I'm one of those worriers. <laughs> it's like the second era, we've added that on there. That's who I am. But actually, it's just an arising. <laughs> And that, that sense that of, of maybe you've experienced the space that can happen around an emotion like this. I'm such an anxious person. I don't know, maybe, maybe I wanna say that maybe there, there's a place for that where that, that's helpful. So I wanna be careful. I don't wanna, again, you know, prioritize one way to freedom over others. I, I think uh, it's, it's a tricky business. And yet the, the freedom that can come with this is just to see that anxiousness can arise and it can pass away. It's really so freeing. It really doesn't belong to me. <laughs> this comes and goes. And also there's this other thing that you're probably realizing that comes into the notion of self that the Buddha points out is that uh, you've probably realized you're not in complete control. <laughs> right? 
and thinking that you're, you're in complete control is a is is part of the sense of self that the Buddha is talking about, the kind of atta that was spoken about back then. So when you realize, oh, interesting, I'm you influenced, but you don't have complete control. That's part of noticing the sense of not self. So just noticing that it's an arising and passing away. All of experience is like this. This is what we want to begin to notice and to see. And, and not self can have a whole host of flavors. Sometimes it's just the simple flavor of being breathed rather than the sense of I am breathing or being walked. It can have a sense of like, at times, like experience has no center to it. It's really some uh, great descriptions of that. And one framework that I like is to begin to track, and I might have mentioned this in one of the group practice discussions, of, of seeing it as a continuum. Sometimes it feels like the self is super thick. Like, here I am, I know it. <laughs> here I am, I'm irritated about such and such. I'm angry about this. I'm afraid of this. And like, like I am, there I am, I'm fixed, right? That's the, that's the that, that's the that's the sense of it, and it feels thick. And then other times it might feel like the the sense of self is so wispy, like if there's a thinning out of it. It's not much of me. And again, the language that I I word I, I use is that sometimes again the word that the positive word when this is the thinning out of the self is there's a kind of intimacy. That seems to, to be an experience. Another way you can play with this also is uh, sometimes using the passive voice around experience. Oh, interesting, hearing is happening right now. Seeing, oh, interesting, because so often it feels like I'm the one who's seeing. Uh, seeing, it's happening. It's happening right now. Oh, raising my hand and the intention to raise my hand. Oh, raising the hand is happening right now. Oh, the intention. Oh, there's an intention to raise the hand. I can feel like there's an intention there. That arises and then there's an, a movement that arises. The one talking in, in one's mind. Oh, yep. Verbal, ver verbalizing is happening. Even being aware, oh, awareness is happening right now. It's not me, it's not mine, it's not who I am. So it's, it's becoming curious about this and how we posit that there's something static there. Sometimes it's great can, to look for, is there anything fixed there? What do you find? Sometimes the unfindability is a, a great find. It's like undermining that. So you might want to begin to play around with this. And I'll, again, tomorrow morning, go over some things to, again, play. 
to cultivate this perception of not-self. Yeah, we might have time to continue being somebody, stabilizing that strong sense of self, cool, awesome, and being nobody. Maybe to end with this quote, probably many of you know this quote, because it's such a great quote from Sri Nisargadatta. Love says, I am everything. Or we could say, I think this is actually so poignant, if we change it. Love says, I am somebody, like I can take up space. And wisdom says, I am nothing. I am nobody. Between the two, my life flows. So may our life flow in a way between the two, in a way that, that brings the liberation of all beings. Thank you. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.